you now to turn and find in your Bibles, loved ones, the scripture passage we will consider this morning from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 to 31. If you're here visiting us for the first time or haven't been here in a while, we've been working our way through this majestic book from the prophet Isaiah. Last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of this chapter, and we continue beginning in verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 40. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth with a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge? and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor all its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness." To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time of considering his word. Lord, indeed, who is like you? And we come before you asking that you would humble us by your word as we consider it and meditate on it this morning. We ask that you would instill within us a fear of you, reverence of your holy name. Lord, open up the eyes of our heart to see clearly who you are as you reveal yourself in your word that we might run to you by faith and take refuge in you. Lord, we ask that you would do this by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, even drawing us closer to Jesus as we meditate on your word. We pray in his name. Amen. So where do you go when you are tired, when you're stressed out, when you look to the future and you're filled with fear? You know, for some of us, that might be we run to a beer and a football game. For others, it might be running to the gym and working out. Some people try and just sleep it off. Others binge on social media or Netflix, while others still dive into pornography. Others might run to food and fill themselves up with food, while others will fill themselves up with alcohol. The list could go on and on, but in each case, what do we see? We find that different people, each of us, in the same way, are doing the same thing. We're running away from our distress in order to find rest and comfort in something that is not God. And when people do that, the Bible clearly says it is idolatry, that we are committing idolatry, and that is a really big problem. Theologian G.K. Beale says this about idolatry. God's good gifts are good gifts as long as we accept them as good gifts from him. But when we begin to trust in those, to find our ultimate satisfaction and happiness in those things and not God, they become an idol. An idol. You see, idolatry is really the deepest and most fundamental problem in each and every one of our hearts. Instead of trying to find ultimate satisfaction and rest in God, our Creator, our hearts try to find all other kinds of fixes to our deep problem. And those fixes, if they are not God, are idols. And that is really the problem that Isaiah here in this passage is addressing. He knows as he's writing this He knows that his people, God's people, were freaking out about their future that was before them. They were stressed and they were scared of what was coming down the pipe for them in their near future, the exile and their time in Babylon, as Isaiah had been predicting. And he knew that because of that, they were so tempted to run to other things to try and find comfort and security, and they were especially tempted to run to the idols of their day. And what does Isaiah do about this problem as he anticipates it? Well, he tells them about their God. He gives them theology proper, which is a study of who God is. That is what we find in this text before us. And why? Because the more our hearts revere God, fear him above all else, and the more we will run to him in our distress, and the more that we run to God by faith, the more he will renew us by his grace. And that's exactly Isaiah's aim in this passage, to make 
God's people revere him above all else so that they would run to him and thereby be renewed by God in his grace. And that's our aim as well as we study this passage together. And so we can dive in considering that aim before us. In the opening verses of 12 to 14, Isaiah here, look at the text, he's wowing us with some rhetorical questions about God as this powerful creator. These questions that he's asking, they're rhetorical in the sense that he already knows the answers to these questions. Why then ask them? Well, to make us realize that God stands over all of creation and nothing stands beside him. He is unique. He is set apart. He is the Holy One. And that's what he shows us here. In verse 12, we find that the Lord God is the maker of all things. And if you look at the language in the verse, Isaiah contrasts a few different things. He contrasts the waters and the dust, the heavens and the earth. Why? He's expressing totality. We do this, we use this idiom in the English language when we talk about a whole person saying from their head to their toes in reference to the entirety of the person. And so that point is simple. There is a creator God who exists who made every single quirk, every proton and electron, every atom, all the way to the most distant galaxy in the universe. Everything exists because of him and comes from him as the creator. Not only that, we see that Isaiah shows us here that the whole creation is a work of his intelligent precision. Isaiah says, he uses verbs here, that God measured it. He marked it off. He enclosed it and weighed it. In particular, that verb for marked off is the kind of term or verb that we would use for an engineer Uh, reviewing their final work, the final inspection of their plans, assessing and assuring that all of their calculations, all of their math, all of the physics, all of it's correct. That final assessment of fine-tuning. And that's exactly what Isaiah wants us to think about here, the fine-tuning of God's creation. In other words, when we observe the natural world around us as scientists examine the universe and consider all of the necessary conditions. There are necessary conditions for the existence of life as we know it. That when we consider those conditions and how the world and the universe is so finely tuned, the only logical and plausible conclusion is that a super intellect is behind it all as the creator. And this is one of the most persuasive arguments for the existence of God. The astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle said this, the chance that high life forms might have emerged by luck is comparable to the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. Ridiculously improbable. And even though this particular astronomer died as an atheist, Hoyle concluded this as he observed the natural world. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that super intellect, a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. 
he recognized that the most plausible explanation is that a super intellect is behind the fine-tuning of the universe as we see it and observe it. And you might be ignorant about those various conditions that are necessary for the existence of life, but it doesn't mean that they're not factual. They are. We live in a finely tuned universe, finely tuned for life itself to exist. And so belief in God is not an intellectual cop-out by any means. It is a position of intellectual honesty as we observe the natural worlds. For example, if you found a beach, walk, on the beach, if you found a watch there that was there on the shore that the waves had brought up and you examined it, what is more plausible of an explanation? That the ocean just by chance happened to form this watch in its intricately designed nature by chance or that some human designed it and created it in a factory somewhere? Well, naturally, the more plausible explanation is that there was a creator, a designer. And the same applies even to a greater extent as we examine the fine-tuning of the universe itself. And so Isaiah, here in this passage, is reminding us that this world that we live in is not self-originating. That you are not self-originating. You are not your own creator. The world does not have, is not its own creator. There is a creator that stands above and before his creation. He is the only eternally self-originating being. And all else derives its being and existence from him. He stands as a super intellect before all things and above all things. And in, if you look at verses 13 to 14, Isaiah adds that nobody has ever stood beside him either. He never needed a counselor. He never needed an advisor or anyone to come alongside to inspect his work. He has no need of learning. God's creation, as we've already considered, needed fine-tuning. But the Creator did not need any fine-tuning for himself. No one needed to fine-tune him. He is the Eternal One who is infinite in his wisdom, in his understanding. There is no beginning nor end to all that he knows. Not only that, his way of thinking is totally different, distinct from ours. God's IQ is not on our chart, not a number that we could place there. It can't be charted. His IQ can't be charted, period. There is no way to measure or weigh the genius of God, our creator. He's in a whole other category of his own. Now, children... Not too long ago, I tell my my own boys this often, not too long ago there was a time when you did not exist, right? And there was a time when your parents did not exist. There was a time when humans did not exist. There was a time when the animals did not exist. There was a time when the earth did not exist, nor the moon, nor the sun, nor the stars above. There was a time when the universe did not exist. And when we think back to that very beginning of the universe itself, that moment when it occurred, what was before it? What came before? God, the creator of everyone and everything. That's what Isaiah is showing us here. He is the one who stands above and before 
his creation. And how does this God look upon humanity? Well, that's what Isaiah addresses in verses 15 to 17. He says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, a tiny drop in a bucket of water, or like dust on the scales. Isaiah is showing us here how microscopically small and insignificant we are in comparison to who God is. Now, what does a drop of water add to a bucket of water? Or how much dust upon your body affects the weight that you read on the scale? Well, essentially, nothing. And according to verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before God. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, this is not a message we hear often. Lots of people think they are something big, something worth admiring, something great. But compared to the God of all glory, we are as nothing. The greatest people of the world today that we are so enamored enamored with and fascinated by will soon grow old, die, and be forgotten. They are like dust in the wind. And like Paul said to the Athenians, some of your own prophets have said this. Some of our own prophets have said this. In 1977, the band Kansas released their song by that title, Dust in the Wind. And the song was a reflection of this sobering truth. One stanza says this, the same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. See, before God, we are but dust. There is nothing that we can point to in all of creation and say, that is like God, because he is totally distinct, set apart, holy, in a a category all to his own. And so with this comparison before us between God and us, Isaiah shows us in the next verses, 19 to 24, just how foolish idolatry is. Remember, he's trying to get us to revere God, to fear him above all else so that we would run to him in our distress instead of running to idols of various kinds. Because the creator of all life is the only one capable of sustaining our life, of giving us more life. Therefore, to try and find ultimate satisfaction, security, or happiness in anything other than God himself is utter folly. Or in simple language, it is stupid of us to run to anything that is not God, to try and find ultimate rest and renewal. It is folly. Remember what Isaiah's aim is. He wants us to revere God so that we run to him by faith to be renewed by his grace more and more. And the opposite is true, which is another point Isaiah has here, that the less we revere God, well, then the more we will run to false gods. And the more we run to false gods, the more we will be ruined by those false gods. G.K. Beale writes about this in his book, We become what we worship. And he spends a lot of time actually in the book of Isaiah examining this very theme. And he says this, One of the major problems in Israel in the book of Isaiah 
is idol worship. God is basically saying, okay, you like idols, then I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to judge you by means of your own sin. It will be an ironic judgment. You will love idols? Well, I'm going to make you even more like the idols. You're going to be just like them. You're going to have spiritual eyes, but you won't see, and spiritual ears that you won't hear. And so he's saying that just as an idol has the shape of eyes and ears formed or carved upon it, but cannot hear and cannot see, so too his people would be a people that have eyes and have ears, but not able to see the things of God, not able to hear the things of God. And we see that in verses 19 to 21, where he says, you've become a people without understanding, without ears that hear, without sense to understand. You've become like the idols that you worship, which are made to look like they have eyes, ears, hands, and feet, but they're deaf, they're blind, they're dumb, and they're lifeless. Now, why is Isaiah leaning into them with this truth? Again, because he knows how tempted the human heart is to run after idols. And he's saying that the more you do, the more you'll end up just like them. The more you run away from God to find satisfaction in other things, the more you'll end up ultimately deaf, blind, dumb, and lifeless. You cannot go on living without being connected to the creator of all life. How does this apply to us? Well, Beale says this, people will always reflect something, whether it be God's character or some feature of the world. If people are committed to God, they will become like him. If they are committed to something other than God, they will become like that thing, always spiritually inanimate and empty, like the lifeless and vain aspect of creation to which they have committed themselves. You see, again, Isaiah is trying to draw our hearts to God, to him who is eternal and infinite in his wisdom, the Holy One, our eternal creator, because he alone is able to give us life that lasts longer than a dandelion, which is quickly blown away by the wind. He alone is able to raise us up from the dust and turn us into glory. He alone is able to give us eternal life, even after death itself. And so in verses 26 to 31, Isaiah calls us to lift up our eyes higher than just what is before us in creation, to see the one who created all things. And now he's showing us here how to run to God in our distress. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 shows that Isaiah knew the doubts of his people. He knew what they were thinking and what they were saying. They were saying, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. You see, in their trouble, this is what they were thinking. God's gone. God doesn't see me. God must not care about me. Or he's just too busy to be involved in the mess that I'm in right now. But don't you see? God is the one who, like a cattle herd, herder, brings out all the billions of stars each night and knows them by name exact number he has for each and every one of them. And he does this by his great and mighty power. And so, Christian, why would you think that he has forgotten or lost you, you who are a precious sheep that belongs to Jesus? 
He hasn't. It is impossible for the all-powerful, all-knowing creator to lose that which belongs to him. And Christian, by faith in Jesus, you belong to him. He cannot lose you. Look at verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Again, this is what Isaiah has been driving at. When you are depleted of energy, when you are weary and exhausted by the demands of life, when you are doubting and searching for answers, run to God. Why? Because he does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. Yes, you might be weary and faint and lose all strength to press on, even if you are young, which Isaiah points out for us, even if you're in your youth. But the Lord does not faint or grow weary, and he cannot and never will. And that's good news for us, especially when we look at verse 29, because Isaiah shows us that with this strength that the Lord has, he also comes to us with a gracious disposition towards each and every person who comes to him in their weakness and distress. What does he do, according to verse 29 there? He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And so, Christian, if you run to God by faith, know this. He delights to give himself to you in order to strengthen you and build you up and keep you going forward by faith. Because of this, we have the promise in verse 31 that they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So do you hear the voice of the Lord your God calling you to him again this morning in your own troubles, in your own weariness, as you're tired and exhausted? If you run to false gods, it will be your own ruin. But if you run to God by faith, he will renew your strength. The very God who is a self-originating creator is also the God who is the self-giving Savior. He gives himself over for us in order to make us like him and to fill us with his own life. And we see that, don't we? Especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But think about this. Think about how shocking this was in the first century when Jesus of Nazareth, a man, said this of himself in John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, it's no surprise that immediately after Jesus said that, the Jewish leaders took up stones and tried to stone Jesus to get him killed and executed. They saw this as blasphemy. Isaiah, what has he told us? That nothing, nothing is like God. Nobody is like him. He is the Holy One. And here is Jesus 
basically saying, who is like God? I am. It's shocking. In fact, he says, not only that, not only am I like God, I and the Father are one. We are the same essence. There are only two ways to make sense of this. Either on the one hand, Jesus is a lying lunatic here, or Jesus is the very God of whom Isaiah has been talking about who came in human flesh. Those are really the only two options. And you see here at the end of our message, I'm not just tacking on Jesus at the end of this sermon. Because everything we have seen about God from this passage, we believe to be true of Jesus Christ. We believe that he is the Holy One, the everlasting God, our eternal creator, our incomparable God who took on our own human nature from the Virgin Mary in order to give himself over in death to renew our life in him. The one who created us is the one who gave his own life for us to renew us and redeem us. And Jesus proved his identity as God when he walked out of that grave on the third morning after his death. He walked out of death's grips and into eternal glory. If he had been a lying lunatic, he would not have been able to beat death, but he did. And therefore he is the Lord God Almighty. And now Jesus stands with resurrected power as the one of whom Isaiah speaks here, the one who gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. That means that if you run to Jesus by faith, he will renew your soul in this life. And on the last day, he will resurrect your body from the grave into eternal life with him in the age to come. And so at the close, loved ones and friends, hear Jesus speak to your very heart again this morning. He who said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Go to Jesus, and he will renew your strength. Amen. Let's pray. O Christ, our King, Creator, Lord, we rejoice that you, O God, entered into human history, taking on our own human nature in humility and love in order to give yourself over for us, even over to death itself, to redeem us from the grip of death and to give us eternal life. And Lord, we do pray and ask that as we are so tempted in our own distress, in our fatigue and exhaustion to run to other things beside you, that through this meditation on the very nature of who you are, O oh God, and as you have revealed yourself in the person and work of Jesus, that we might revere you all the more, and so run to you and be renewed by your grace more and more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones, let's respond to God's word.